0: Good afternoon, and welcome back to the Fullcast and Crew podcast. I am your host, Jason Silo. Welcome once again. Today, we are going to be talking about Stephen Frears and Peter Morgan's film, The Queen, starring Helen Mirren, which came out in 2006. Now, this episode is coming out on the Tuesday after the Queen's funeral, which is something You were either raptly staring at in a mix of wonder or maybe curiosity or perhaps revulsion. There have been a couple weeks now of think pieces and, of course, terrible Twitter takes on the matter of the queen. There have been knee-jerk anti-establishment off with their head takes. There have been thoughtful context-based looks at uh, what her life and legacy might be at what her passing might mean for the future national identity of England, of the United Kingdom, what it means for places in the not always so united kingdom like Scotland and Northern Ireland, uh, how her life reconciles with colonialism and societal governmental ills of the sort that really any nation typically inflicts upon the world, And as for me and my take on all that, well, listen, you know me, I like subcultures with their own bizarre rules and customs and lingo and personalities, and whether that's the Grateful Dead or Hollywood or the American Mafia or casino operations in Las Vegas or Brooklyn drug gangs or Chinatown tongs or the royal family, these all have things in common. They have charismatic leaders, they have rules and codes of behavior. They have ugly dark sides. They have repression, money, grift, public image, often at odds with more complicated realities lurking under the surface. So if like me, you're attracted to things like that, the royal family has been a gift that's kept on giving for decades. Um, I've previously mentioned on the pod, a brilliant, amazing book called 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret by Craig Brown. And the attitude contained in this book completely sums up my own sort of personal take on the royal. So if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. I've noticed in recommending this book to people in the past <laughs> that I guess as a result of the times that we're, that we're living in, people can't even get past the title or the presence of the words Princess Margaret, they think it must be a celebration of the royal family, and, and 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 to read something that they think is a celebration of the royal family is to somehow embrace, you know, hundreds of years of, of colonial oppression. But of course, if you know Craig Brown, if you know his work at all, the book is such a subversive, balanced socio-political, cultural, anecdotal uh evolving story it has such a brilliantly jaundiced view of image and celebrity and all that kind of protocol and internal stuff that i mentioned appreciating before and it's viewed through a very princess margaret kind of cigarette and gin stained lens and like all great documentary works in choosing to uh put Margaret forward as the subject of this book, you know the other, the sister of the queen, not the queen and in looking at how being the other either affected her personality or how much her personality was suited slash unsuited to being the sister of the queen in picking the this other he gets perhaps closer to the real meaning and the value or the lack of value that the Royal family has. And he gets close to the essential silliness of the whole concept without just doing what's lazy and dumping on the whole thing. So you probably remember Margaret most famously fictionalized by Helena Bottom Carter in the crown, which is also a Peter Morgan who uh, Peter Morgan project. Peter Morgan wrote the queen Uh, Stephen Frears directed the Queen. But Craig Brown has a very keen eye for understanding the uh, construct of the royals. Um, He raises a lot of interesting and intriguing questions, and it makes you ponder whether the institution itself made Queen Elizabeth uh, what she was, if you subscribe to the notion that for 70 years she handled the role as best as anyone ever has, um, it's interesting. And people and all of these fictional works often speculate about what's under the hood, what makes this woman tick. And of course, we're going to get into that as we talk about this movie. So, this is not a political episode, <laughs> this is a movie podcast. And I've loved this movie. Ever since I first saw it, I love films like this, like Shattered Glass. I love films that sort of dramatize real people and real events, either small or large, just to use those two films as contrasting uh, examples. But I've always loved this movie. I always found it super watchable. I'm willing to bet you probably have, too. And again, I think whatever your politics regarding the queen or the royal family You've probably been able to enjoy this film, and that's one of the film's particular strengths, is that I don't think it carves out any one lane. I think, by and large, it's viewed as sympathetic to the royal family, maybe with the exception of Charles, who it's, it's funny. I read something recently that pointed out that in all of these fictional uh, retellings of the royal family, he's, he's the one person who generally comes across the worst and the least sympathetic even even margaret in the crown is portrayed with a certain train wrecky insouciance and devil-may-care attitude that i think is is catnip for an actor playing the role uh, charles is a different story altogether but the film as we'll talk about i think does a really great job of containing all of the multitudes that get put upon Stories involving the royal family. It does a great job about showing us this time. Uh, I think Diana died in 1997, showing us this time that we now don't live in anymore, where people consumed television news as the main source of their information, where they read newspapers as the main source of their information. There's not a single person in this film who's looking at their phone and getting information through social media. There are numerous scenes of people, including the royal family themselves, watching television, which is something I think we know that the queen and the royal family do. They're normal people in that regard. And the film, as I said, came out in 2006, which is just removed enough, about 10 years removed from the events that the film dramatizes, which is Princess Diana's death. Um, And it's all set against this youth movement in politics that was going on in the United States and in Great Britain. You have Clinton. You have his British doppelganger Tony Blair, you have this moment to tell us all something about this incredible, insane global occurrence, which is Princess Diana's death. In a pre-internet era, when, as I said, TV and newspapers reigned, really the absolute height of their manipulative powers, of their power to hold up a mirror to society, Maybe you could make an argument it was the last great news moment for traditional media, if you think it's a great moment. I mean, the film also points out that the media, in addition to colluding with the royal family, also attacks the royal family to sell newspapers. And uh, the actor portraying Tony Blair's speechwriter and political strategist Alistair Campbell says in response to Tony Blair trying to play a little defense on behalf of a queen who will not come down from Balmoral and speak to her people, Alistair Campbell says, statements of support don't sell newspapers, mate. So the film is many things. And among them, it's a critique and a very clear-eyed assessment of how someone like the person Elizabeth becomes something like the queen in quotes. And as I said, how the press and the political institutions of a nation both support and attack that creation simultaneously propping it up and also sawing away at its legs. It's also a procedural film. That's something I love about it. I love these films that sort of show us the procedure of political or sociological events unfolding within a family So this is a procedural film that takes a very forensic-feeling nonfiction look at events and also employs fictional speculation. And it's also, much like my recent pay-on to the film Heat, it's an actor's film with Helen Mirren and Michael Sheen particularly leading a corgi-like pack of insanely talented Uh, Actors from all over the United Kingdom, but they are thoroughly supported by very excellent and necessary turns from actors like Helen McCrory, may she rest in peace, Roger Allam, Sylvia Sims, Mark Baisley, Tim McMullen, so many great performances uh, that if you're a fan of acting, and I think this particular style of acting occurs to me watching this film, it's when you're doing a film like this, portraying real people, in events that you can ostensibly read about yourself. Obviously you are placing a lot of fictional, um, scaffolding around what you perceive to be the story. But it occurs to me, this is a different type of film acting than like in a film like heat per se, because the key people have to toe that most difficult of acting lines, which is that line between impersonation and, Caricature, um, with still being able to believably and humanly present sides of these people that we don't get to see. Now, obviously, they have more freedom on that side of the equation because we don't get to see it. So all of the speculative rumination and inner life that shows like The Crown and movies like The Queen uh, offer up is, of course, speculative and made up by and large can be informed by research, but essentially creative people and actors are making choices to speak for what these people might have been thinking and saying in these critical moments. So they have much more freedom to bring that part to life, but they also have to have the mannerisms and, and enough of a, of a similar look to the, to the real people to, uh, to pull it off. So it's in those kinds of performances and particularly in Peter Morgan's just typically excellent writing, that the real and more interesting kind of tenor of this film can be seen. It's not, it's not a sympathetic picture of the royal family. It's not. It can't be easily reduced to that. Really, any more than it's a sympathetic portrait of Tony Blair, for that matter. You know, both people are shown to be uh, venal, opportunistic. They both miss the point until it dawns on them um i think it's it's rather a a clear-eyed survey of the strangeness of the moment itself you know the the strangeness and the humanness of everyone involved in that moment of diana's death and it's a film that asks questions and presents people at both their best and their worst moments As they're baffled by, battered about by the events, by history, uh, by personal, national interests. And I think it's fascinating for that regard. As I mentioned, the film's directed by Stephen Frears, written by Peter Morgan, and they have a commentary track. If you get this on DVD or uh, I watched it on Apple... Listening to them talk, it does feel more like a Peter Morgan project, production and project to me. This may be just a deference that Stephen Frears has or a uh, an inner quality. He's not very effusive as a director. I listened to 18 minutes of their commentary, tack before, commentary track before I turned it off. And then I instead went and listened to uh, a second commentary track, which is by the film's historical advisor, Robert Lacey, who's sort of an expert on the royal family. He's an expert on the institution and the protocols. And his commentary track I found fascinating because it has all the inside stuff that I like, whatever the subject matter is, like I said. Whether it's a drug drug gang or the royal family, uh, all the inner procedural stuff is what I'm fascinated by. And to Stephen Freer's credit, He's the first person on the commentary track to both mention that uh, Peter Morgan is the source for much of what we're looking at and to deflect credit towards Morgan and to many other people who contributed good ideas. He says something like, you know, I always get credit for these things when all I did was really evaluate whether it was a good idea or not. But then again, that's the job of the director. And I've heard that said by many other directors in the course of doing the podcast and Peter Morgan of course has gone on as i said to do the crown which is the current massive global hit about the royal family that really centers uh, queen elizabeth in the narrative in it and i think rightly speaks to the central place that she has occupied in the public you know uh, mind and perception of the royal family and it also speaks to the essential cipher that she is and that she was as the queen and that's something that's kind of easy to Overlook about her, but that I think is part of the reason why there is this continual fascination with her. And I put it akin to what I said about actors like De Niro or Pacino in Heat, where I mentioned that, you know, sometimes people assume or films assume iconic status. And because they assume that status, it's almost requires a little work to remember and to really look again and appreciate how amazing they actually are. And in a way, um, since I believe acting of one form or or another is absolutely part of what Queen Elizabeth was called upon to do in her public life, I think the comparison is apt because I would like to think we live in a world where whatever your personal politics are about colonialism or whether the Actions of a government should be fairly dropped squarely in the lap of the figurehead who whose whole reason for being is to remain publicly apolitical and above that sort of day to day fray. Uh, I think a lot of people believe that she should have used her position to directly put forth and push for a social change agenda. That's probably very unrealistic if you look into the history and the culture of the royal family and of the United Kingdom and the the role that it all plays. But all that stuff is to the side because I think it's it's acting. You know, she has to perform in public. And the degree to which that performance is her or not is interesting to think about. If you look at the performance over 70 years um, and you look at what public life has become. It's extraordinary on a number of levels that, for example, Queen Elizabeth never gave a formal interview, ever. No magazine article, no news, no 60 Minutes piece, nothing. She never gave a formal interview. Now, she appears in a couple of things. There's famously a documentary about the royal family that they allowed in, I think, 68 or 69. It aired once, and then I think either she or the royal family or their handlers thought it was a bit too a bit too much publicity. And I think they asked for it not to be seen again. She's participated in a couple of other documentary projects, but always pointedly not per se about her. And that's part of the sort of interesting uh, aspects of the film too. Now, what are the aspects of a film about, in quotes, the Royals that we've come to require or expect? Well, we need to have access to the inner lives and thoughts and the actions that we don't normally get to hear about. We need drama. We need the conflict inherent in drama. And part of the brilliance of this film is how it delivers the fictionalized version of these events surrounding the death of Princess Diana. But it also uses newsreel footage to show real, actual feelings and thoughts from real and actual people. So in this way, I think Peter Morgan and Stephen Frears bring a realism into this very inherently unrealistic undertaking, which is, here's a film about what the queen was thinking and going through during the week following Princess Diana's death, when there was this very public row between the public and what they demanded of the queen and what the queen felt was the right thing to do. So in other words, he uses, they use real footage of real people to tell us about the stuff that the public in quotes was wrestling with. And then he uses the conventions of drama to imagine what may have been very likely going on inside the palaces and the castles and the minds of the people that are featured in the film. And the historical advisor to the film, as I said, is Robert Lacey. And if you look into him, he's got access and sources. So We're obviously not getting a documentary version of the truth of these things. And I would imagine that the real Queen Elizabeth is probably like most celebrities you end up meeting. Not to say that they're usually disappointing, but they're really not as layered and fascinating as your mind makes them out to be. She's probably a lot simpler to decode than the miles and miles of film that have been shot trying to explain her to us, make her out to be. But there's enough of the real protocols you can see this I'll talk about this in a second, but you can see this with the events surrounding the queen's uh, funeral and her, 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 her coffin being taken from Scotland and and Ireland and England lying in state. You can see the real thing happening, which was fictionalized in this film with Diana's funeral plans, which were based on uh, her mother's funeral plan. So you, you see enough of these um, real protocols and you see enough of the family dynamics that have been leaked out. It feels a little more truthful to me, honestly, than something like The Crown does, which uh, to me, I've, I've enjoyed some seasons, but I always feel like it's pretty soapy and it's a little more of a soap opera than it is something like this film, which at least in really following a TikTok, as they say, of the events. Of Diana's death, which were so widely covered, there's kind of some gates around the story that I think helps this film stay in its lane. And it doesn't really get way outside that in things like the Queen's relationship with Philip, or you know, what's going on with Charles, things that are that have more room in the crown to be completely speculated on. And so it gets a little wild for me in that, in that side. Although course you have incredible actors as well so there are plenty of charms in the crown but i think this is the best film ever made about the royal family because it tells us something larger than just inside castle gossip type stuff Um, i think this is the first fictionalized filmic portrayal of the queen if we leave aside something like the caricature of the queen in the naked gun movies, which got a lot of play in the aftermath of her death with, I think Leslie Neal or no, it was uh, it was Reggie Jackson uh, saving her life, right. Or setting in motion, some attempt on her life. I I haven't seen the naked gun movies. So uh, that's probably, I think the woman who played the queen there got a lot of mileage out of that, her, her similarity to the queen. But this is, I think the first real full scale, Filmic representation of the Queen that was ever done, and I think it is, as I said, the best filmed entertainment about the royal family. Narrowing that scope, it feels like it's telling us something essential about the whole country, the whole institution, the people. In a similar way that Craig Brown's book does that by focusing on maybe the most wayward of the royal family and Princess Margaret, uh, Princess Margaret, and. As to the charge or the accusation I've heard made about the film that it's sympathetic to the queen and, and that if that were the case, that's somehow a damning, uh, a damning judgment against appreciating it or watching it. If you listen to Morgan and Freer's comments on the DVD, uh, I, you can hear that they both despair, basically, at the fact of the two million people who showed up to stand outside for Diana's funeral and to watch it on the TV screens that were set up so that so that the people could watch the service that they otherwise wouldn't be uh, privy to. And you can hear Morgan say, uh, he, he wonders, you know, whether we, we couldn't mobilize for something more interesting. Uh, and Frears mumbles something like, well, that's not, that's not how we do things as a species. So I think that their view is a little bit more uh, clear eyed than it is Supportive, But there is also a thing that maybe it's hard for Americans to understand, which is the emotional headspace that the queen occupies uh, for British people and for people in the United Kingdom, whether they're united or not with the cause of <laughs> the royal family or the monarchy. Um, she occupies a lot of headspace. I think Boris Johnson mentioned that studies show that she is the person who most frequently occupies the dreams of, of British people. And whether they are in conflict with her in their mind or not, you can see that it's a very different type of reaction that people who feel motivated to go wait in line and pay respects to her. I was just watching on CNN. David Beckham you know, spent 12 hours in line, and they have footage of him approaching the coffin. He's very emotional and it's very genuine. And you can see other people in line who are not famous people also having emotions. Now I think one of the strengths of this film is that I think Morgan and Frears take pains to say that that's a slice of person that would do that. That's not everyone in quotes. There's many scenes where both the crown and Tony Blair's office are wrestling with whether, something that's in the newspaper or something that's shown on television means they have to react to it in a certain way. It means as if the queen is sort of saying sometimes like, well, just because this, uh, or I think as Prince Philip says, you know, another sleeping out, sleeping rough, uh, outside a castle, you know, gives a pretty good soundbite, which is played in the film. They wonder, you know, why do they have to essentially pander to the, to the, somewhat small segment of people that would show up for something like that because that's not the national mood and that's what they're all trying to figure out and it's the use of newsreel footage and particularly the use of the real diana i mean if you had an actor playing diana i don't think this film would work Uh, so thankfully they allow real footage of the real diana to speak for herself and that adds a poignancy to things and a realism to the necessarily heightened dramatic outcomes of the scripted bits. And another thing I wasn't aware of till I watched the commentary track. And then once I'm aware of it now, I can't stop noticing it. So if you weren't aware of it before, this is an interesting filmic uh, aspect, which is that Stephen Frears used 16 millimeter film for all of the Tony Blair scenes. So whether he's with his family, whether he's with his advisors, those are all shot in 16 millimeter, which doesn't look as good as the 35 millimeter film that he used to shoot all of the royal family scenes. So the royal family scenes look crisper and grander because it's shot on a better film stock. The Blair scenes look more homey, more homespun, more of the people. It's a very subtle thing that you wouldn't really notice. I don't think. I mean, I certainly didn't notice, and I've seen the movie probably 10 or 12 times but I didn't notice it until someone mentioned it on the commentary track. So anyway, an homage to Craig Brown's book. Here's a few glimpses that I jotted down as I rewatched the film in preparation for this. And perhaps if you listen to this episode, these will float in your not too distant reaches of your memory as you rewatch, or maybe if you watch it for the first time, if you've never seen it, I don't want to spoil or uh, try to hold your hand here as you watch as much as color in some of the experience that I think are interesting to note as you uh as you watch the film. Now, one of the interesting first things is sort of a screenplay thing. And I heard Morgan talk about this. The film opens with a formal portrait sitting session with the queen dressed up in all of this regal finery, and she's having her portrait painted. And in addition to using the conversation between her and the portrait painter to sort of make some uh, political place setting points, They realized that in his original screenplay, it started with the very next scene, which is the queen asleep in bed. And I guess, and this is what I was speaking about before, where trying to sort of understand the place that the queen can occupy in in the British psyche, I think they felt that didn't feel right, that you needed to start the film by seeing the queen as you were used to seeing the queen, which is as the queen. Then we see her very much as you're not used to seeing her, which is frumpily asleep. And they added this scene with the queen so that we see her as we're all used to seeing her. And I think that's pretty funny. Another thing that they get into, and this is some of the realism of the portrayal. And I think it's interesting to think about actors who will tell you that props and things like that are very important. Well, when you think of the queen, you think of what she's usually wearing. You think of the hairstyle she's had, the glasses, uh, and the handbag. It's been speculated that these handbags contain nothing more than maybe a lipstick and a precisely folded five-pound note for the church donation basket. Always five pounds, never more, never less. Uh, I read some great articles in maybe maybe some less than... Uh, Less than you know, trustworthy sources like The Daily Mail that she also uses the handbag to discreetly signal to uh, handlers and staff when she wants a meeting to end or if a conversation needs to be nipped at the bud. Um, it also subtly prevents, or I think at least discourages kind of two armed embraces and hugging. It's part of her image. And it says carefully considered and controlled, as the woman is herself. And in the film, I think Frears and Morgan pay diligent attention to this, and you'll be able to notice it as you watch it. Uh, here's a great scene when Blair meets the queen for the first time. And I think, to the point I was making before, that the film does more than just show, you know, a sympathetic portrait of the royal family, or at least of the queen, but it also sends up some of the pomposity and silliness of the protocols. And the scene, the first scene between Michael Sheen and Helen Mirren as prime minister and as queen is crackling with a lot of the stuff as Tony and Cherie Blair are brought up to meet the queen for the now famous process where she invites the incoming prime minister to form a government in her name. So Helen McCrory, who passed away, I think, just last year, is such a fantastic actor. A lot's been said about her on the pod. She's I'm great. Nervous.
1: Why, you as you Sheree Blair.
2: Blair? I know, but never one to one, never as Prime Minister.
1: Well, just remember, you're a man that's just been elected by the whole nation,
2: but she's still, you know,
0: the Queen. There you go. McCrory is great because she shows this other side of the British public's attitude towards the monarchy. This guy's great walking through the protocol.
2: When we reach the audience room, I will knock.
1: We will not wait to be called. We shall go straight inside. Standing by the door, we bow from the neck. I will introduce you. The queen will extend her hand. You go to her, bow again, then shake her hand. couple of other things. It's ma'am as in ham. Not
2: mom as in farm. And when you're in the presence, at no point was to show your back. The presence? Yes, sir. That's what it's called when you're
1: in Her Majesty's Company.
0: Cherie Blair is just giving Helen McCroy is giving great (laughs) sniggering asides to this stuff. And this stuff is what I mean about just this brilliant portrayal of the class system. There's looks that the Queen gives the Blairs.
1: How nice to see you again, Mr. Blair. Handbag. And congratulations. Thank you. Children must be very proud. Well, I hope so. You've three, haven't you? That's right. Oh, how lovely. Such a blessing, children. Uh, please do sit down. Have we shown you how to start a nuclear war yet? Uh, no. Oh, first thing we do, apparently. Then we take away your passport and spend the rest of the time sending you around the world. (laughs) (laughs) You
2: obviously know my job better than I do.
1: Well, you are my tenth Prime Minister, Mr Blair. My first, of course, was Winston Churchill. He sat in your chair in frock coat and top hat. He was kind enough to give a shy young girl like me quite an education. I can imagine. With time, one has hopefully added experience to that education and a little wisdom better enabling us to execute our constitutional responsibility.
0: Now here, you know, we are fully in the speculative world of fictional writing about the things that the Queen might do or say or think. And, you know, you have to kind of view the film with an eye for the protocol stuff that they get, right? But also to just enjoy when you're in... a a different place of the film, which is where all of these subtle class cues are being played out between these two people. And I think Helen Mirren does a great job, both uh, showing that she's fully aware of what they're supposed to be, what people are supposed to be doing. There's a great scene where Cherie Blair comes in after this moment I just played. And there was a famous moment where she didn't curtsy well enough and of course, the press made a huge thing of it. And you can see that Helen Mirren gives a little look at her uh, clearly irritated attempt to curtsy. And I think Helen Mirren does a wonderful job sending up kind of the, the import of those things and then also uh, all that subtle British class stuff. I mean, I don't know if you've ever encountered or dealt with people from the British upper classes, but there's a infuriating and fascinating way they have of putting you in your place, uh, which is often through misdirection and, as they would say, putting you on the back foot, which is what she's doing right here in referencing Winston Churchill, basically saying to him, you're no Winston Churchill. I knew Winston Churchill. You need to pay attention to my advice. Rather than saying things directly, there's a lot of subterfuge, there's a lot of cues that you're supposed to feel you got wrong, and that's the point of them. And yeah, that is the annoying aspect of that component of British society, but this is all something that I think the film portrays particularly well. And uh, what's also interesting is the film, as I said, reminds us of that time that was in a lot of ways simpler in terms of how we consumed information. There's kind of a shocking amount of times in the film where the action centers around people just watching TV or reading things in newspapers. (laughs) You know, you wouldn't, uh, you just, I don't think you would have a scene in a contemporary film that's set in a contemporary time where people are staring intently at the news, excuse me, in order to figure out what's going on. So one of the things that the film does, and and this is where I think Peter Morgan is is a really brilliant writer, because in the film, the queen's first consideration following the news of Diana's death is her sons, not the queen's sons, Diana's sons, Harry and William. In the film, the royal family is at Balmoral, which is their estate in Scotland, and it's the queen's spiritual home. It's where she lives her best life. This is the essential queen driving a Land Rover herself over rutted, bumpy, muddy roads, Uh, being with dogs, being with horses, being outdoors. Um, It's away from London. It's away from the press. It's safe. The whole family is there. And she wants them to remain there and for the family to remain there. That's her first concern, and that's what's shown in the film. But they also show that the second concern that she has is sort of what's right, what's proper, what's, what's done in terms of what the royal family should or shouldn't do Uh, what their role is. And I think this is one of the places where the film does a really good job of showing two things at the same time. And I think, didn't somebody say that a mark of intelligence is being able to hold two contrary thoughts in your mind at the same time and give them equal weight and consideration? Well, I think the film really does this. It shows us how she misses the point, but it also shows us how part of her concern is a grandmother's concern and a proper concern. And the film itself keeps the boys away from us in a way that similarly, I think shows that same concern, right? They're not putting, they don't have dialogue. You don't really see them except being consoled by Charles or uh, at a distance. So the boys are not characters in the film in a way that also feels somewhat protective For people who, whatever you think and feel about the royal family, um, you know, the press contributed to the death of Diana. I mean, they hounded her into a tunnel and at high speeds uh, caused an accident, which caused the death of her and Dodi Fayed. I mean, that's a fact. So part of, I think, what the film does really well is show both of those uh, things. This scene here.
2: Sorry. A car crash in Paris. The French government announced her death just before 5 o'clock this morning. What have I got on this week? You're writing your maiden conference speech as Prime Minister. Well, let's cancel. So
0: Blair's talking to Alistair Campbell, and he's, this scene is showing that he gets it. He understands how massive and global this is.
2: What you'll be pleased to know, I've already started.
0: And this is kind of contrasted when we cut back to Balmoral with the Queen not at all concerned about the political ramifications of this event, but rather struggling with, I think it's fair to say, the familial aspects of it. Because she previously expressed concern that if Charles took a private plane to Paris, they would be attacked in the press for profligate spending. And... Alex Jennings, who plays Prince Charles by the way, definitely the best Prince Charles ever put on film. I'm going to go back to sleep. Try anyway. This is an incredible scene between these two actors. She reaches out to him in a way that he recognizes ruefully as something she's not good at, right? I think by her own admission and certainly by Charles' admission many times. I think we know that like many people of her generation, perhaps she wasn't the most effusive or warm of parents or maybe her, maybe her role at, you know, age 23, 25, didn't allow her to be as present as she might have been. But there's this underlying tension between her and Charles, which is really brilliantly portrayed between actors of this caliber, Helen Mirren and Alex Jennings who's playing Prince Charles. My
2: private secretary's office of, you found and a it, travel agency open
0: in New York that will
2: sell me a flight to Paris with an hour's stopover in Manchester. Perhaps now you might like to consider whether it's still an extravagance to bring back the mother of the future King of England in one of our planes. All right. Of course.
0: And this is such a great scene because Helen Mirren's face conveys an awareness that she got it wrong earlier. Um, and there's a gesture that she makes to reach out to Charles that he he only just catches. But of course she doesn't do it and he doesn't reciprocate it. And this is the tension that exists between them in addition to all the other tensions that might exist. Um, he goes back into the boys and she's left out in the hallway.
1: John, I don't want the boys to see the news and get upset. First thing in the morning, I want the radio taken out of the bedroom and the television taken out of the nursery. Yes,
0: ma'am. So, you know, this scene exists because in contrast to her concern, I don't want the boys to see or hear the radio or see the newspapers. Blair and his speechwriter are thinking about how are we going to appear in the press tomorrow? How, what are we going to say and what should we be doing? And that's the difference between the way the initial setup of Uh, the film unfolds and that leads us to a little of the fun sparring between the members of the royal family that we get in subsequent scenes in the film Um, music is fantastic in this film too
1: she gave us so much these are some of the vox populi clips and left her alone It just hurts me so much. I've never experienced anything like this. I can't, I think I keep
2: waiting to wake up like it's a bad dream.
0: And again, it's this amazing use of archival footage to show us really what was going on, people leaving acres of flowers uh, outside the castle. And as you can hear in their accents, if you have an eye for this or an ear for this, It's largely working class people, middle class people who are heard from in these news clips that are played as being moved by a Diana's death and critical of what the queen is or isn't doing in response to it. And that's a pointed thing that goes on in the film. You got to be aware of that stuff in order to really, truly understand, I think. The place that the royal family occupies in the British psyche and the way that it's depicted uh, in this film. And uh, the infighting, such as it is, uh, not so much infighting, but it's the royal family sort of uh, wrestling with how they do what they do.
1: If there is a photographer out there,
0: this is the Queen's mother. The
1: first kill of the day.
0: She's quite good, Sylvia Sims.
1: I see Mr. Fayette was buried last night. At midnight. No cameras, no fuss. Very dignified. Why do they do that? Why do they bury their body so soon after the death? Islamic tradition. Something to do with the heat. Mm. Stops the body decomposing.
0: So... You know, this scene exists to tell you that the royals are somewhat clueless about the world and about the real reasons for things. So the Queen Mother is is right in one sense that, yes, Islamic tradition, uh, but the way the scene is shot, it's sort of the contrast between these two things. Let's come in. And then you have... Good morning, ma'am. Roger Allum. Ma'am. Yes,
1: Robin, what can we do?
0: Brilliant as Robin Janvrin.
1: Ma'am. There was a meeting at the palace this morning. About the funeral
0: arrangements, yes. He's so good in this, and he's so essential, because part of what's great about the film is the way that you see Blair trying... Blair being handled by his people to do and respond certain ways, and also the Queen and the royal family being handled by their people to try and do things. And what's great about this scene... I see. ...is it shows both... what form will this
1: funeral take?
0: At the moment, they're suggesting. And of course, these are early days. It it shows how upset she is that a different decision than the one she was led to believe Diana's family wanted to take has been the subject of a very large meeting involving everyone except her. And part of what's great about the Robin Janvrin character is how he.
1: Um, was Was there anything else? This
0: part. No, ma'am. Oh, yes. Uh, one other thing. Kind of like Columbo. He's got, oh, yes, one other thing, which he knew he had to ask her. These two things he's about to ask her. But it's part of the brilliance of the awareness of the protocols and also the way that things are done at this class level, that he handles this the way he does. This is a scene where he's going to try to save her from making potentially bad decisions. And he can't just say, no, 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 you don't want to do that because so rather than doing that, it's brilliantly played out the way you'll hear right here, where he sort of is aware. He has to protect her from things that she either doesn't have the time to stop and consider or the fullness of consideration. The way these things were kicked around in a 15 person meeting for several hours, uh, you know, in order to consider all of these things, then they do have to get her sign off on some of this stuff. And in order to do that, he's got to handle it delicately. So you'll hear here that she kind of is dismissively um, making decisions about things they're asking her to decide on, but she doesn't really understand the fullness of what she's doing. And he gently makes sure she makes the right choice. Listen for that here. Uh, The police commissioner was keen that you consider the idea of a
1: condolence book. It, It would give the growing crowd's Something to do, make marshalling them easier. Oh, yes, yes, of course. Oh, and, and the, the flowers. What flowers? The, the flowers outside Buckingham Palace. At the moment, they're blocking the path through the main gate and will make things difficult for the changing of the guard. Oh, well, fine, then just move them away. Actually, the Lord Chamberlain was wondering whether we should not leave the flowers and send the guards through the north gate. Oh, yes, yes, of course. It's yes, uh, yes, quite right.
0: Brilliant scene because it shows you how the handlers are there to save you from yourself. There's many times in the movie where Blair in his exasperation says, God, will someone save these people from themselves? Well, that's what Robin Janvrin is there to do, and I think that they, they do that pretty well. Um, it's also interesting that all of the filmed and the fictional royals stuff always depicts these things that we never really get to see um but we did get to see one recently which i thought was really funny in consideration of all that is part of this film there is a moment that just happened subsequent to the queen's death you might have seen this where charles and camilla were signing some kind of a declaration and for some reason it's being filmed and pointedly um Let's give him the benefit of the doubt that, you know, his mother has died. There is now, he's now the king for crying out loud. And he must have been through an insane whirlwind of duties, but he also has to wrestle with his own thoughts and feelings as he becomes, you know, the king of England. And so the the fountain pen that he was using, <laughs> like, leaked Oh, I it 12? It 13, sir. Oh, God. He got the date wrong. Oh, God, I put the 13, wrong date down.
1: 13, yes, sir. 12, God, I hate this. going the I don't
0: I can't bear this bloody thing. What they do every stinking time. And Camilla is there, wraith-like in black frock, and and uh, just looks pale. And and um, it's just a funny moment because they're caught, kind of in a in a normal moment of irritation. Well, imagine if our moments of normal irritation were caught and displayed for the world. We probably wouldn't be too thrilled about it. There. What we see now is this kind of amusingly human and maybe understandable moment. Or. Depending on your politics, it's a scathing indictment of moral corruption and, uh, you know, uh, how dare he um, be irritated at something like a fountain pen leaking on his fingers. I like also that this film is a film about leaders. It's about Tony Blair. It's about the Queen and how leadership at their level involves that tricky balance of following your own political and moral and personal compass, but also being wary of or aware of other people's attempts to handle you and guide you to what they want you to do. This is displayed many times in the film uh, as Blair and the queen are handled or attempted to be handled by their respective teams and by the scenes where they try to do this with each other. There's a lot of phone calls um, where Blair, again, being very mindful of all the British stuff going on, even though he's prime minister, he's trying to get her to see things a certain way. And she is clinging either stubbornly or matronly to this defense of both her family and the institution and it's done really, really well. And in fact, I think part of... There is a deference shown by Freer's and by Morgan at times. Like I said, they don't show the boys, even fictionally. And they don't show them in in uh, footage either. And there's a nice choice in the scene where Charles goes to France to see Diana's coffin in the hospital viewing room. There's a really nice choice made to allow Charles to go behind these glass doors and see her coffin. And he, he breaks down a bit and Alex Jennings, who plays Prince Charles does this great thing with his hand where he holds it kind of in front of his face and his signet ring, you know, illustrating um, the Royal family, the, the, even in this moment of grief, there's this thing called, the royal family and his place in it, which sort of has to come first before his own personal thoughts and feelings. That's brilliantly illustrated, I think by Frears having that signet ring being so visible in the frame, but also taking all the sound out allows Charles this private moment that feels very human. And he's trying to uh, win over his emotions, but the emotions win out and The emotions also went out for the British people who are angry towards the royal family's inactions in the week after Diana's death. Um, That's a great scene. As I said, they get the protocol aspects of the Royal funeral, right? You can watch this film and you can see the exact same handling of the coffin and the guards. And I think that lends the film even more today, credibility and accuracy that we can see that they got this right in making Uh, the film. Now, some of the upper class stuff. I love some of the Royal family stuff. I love this scene is brilliant to what I was speaking about before those kind of subtle blink and you'll miss it. British messages that the upper classes are so skilled deploying and decoding, but that the rest of us, including Tony Blair in this scene are left to wonder what the hell exactly just happened. And this, this scene so brilliantly sends that up in this scene. Uh, Tony Blair gets a call from Prince Charles's main advisor.
2: Stephen Lamport on one. Who? Prince of Wales's private secretary.
0: Who? Even that. He says it's urgent. Sorry. And this guy is so perfectly cast. The Prince of
1: Wales has asked me to thank you again for your kind words yesterday. Not at all.
2: Feels
1: that you and he are both modern men of similar mind who could work well together at this difficult time.
0: Fears <laughs> pans over to Charles, who's sitting in the same room while the guy's making the phone call, and he's looking on, like, Yes, yes, you're doing it well. Oh, my full support at all times. Was that it? And uh, yes. And then Charles and the advisor look at each other like, did we get the message? Bizarre.
2: Why is Charles doing this? What? Creeping up to me like this. Banging on about being modern. He did it at the airport when he asked me to deal with his mother. Because he knows that if the Queen continues to get it wrong over Diana, then the royals have become public enemy number one. And he's terrified of being shot, apparently. Oh, Charles.
1: His people have already been on to us to ask for extra protection.
2: Well, he probably thinks that if he's seen to be on our side, then that'll leave the Queen in the firing line. What? So it's okay for his mother to take the bullet, not him? <sighs> what a family.
0: So, I mean, you know, there's pretty pointed criticism here of of actions which are fictional. Like, we don't know that Charles had his advisor do this, but it's a great demonstration of what I was talking about, which is, you find yourself having this conversation, and you you wonder what it is you're being told. What what you know? Wouldn't it be easier if he just said, uh, if Charles himself picked up the phone, since he's sitting there in the room and made his own conversation rather than having his aide do it while he watches? But couldn't he just simply say? I would like your support in the things that I'm going to push my mother to accept on behalf of the Royal family. But instead of doing that, there's this very coded phone call that you're supposed to figure out or not. Sometimes it's done so that you, because they know you won't be able to figure it out. So the upper class Brits are very fond of sending messages like that. If you find yourself on the receiving end of them, it's often an uncomfortable experience. The scene also sets up a brilliant, One of my favorite scenes in the movie, you hear that thing about Charles being afraid of being shot, which is sort of portrayed humorously here because the queen's um, resiliency, her, her, her rough appreciation for outdoor country life, she's the master of this role that she's in. And she's aware that some of her children flounder to find their way in the particular lane that they were given. In being the children of the Queen, and there's an amazing scene uh, between the Queen and Charles, uh, who kind of butts in on her her country drive here. And of course, this is part of the truth of the Queen that she loves to drive this ran- Land Rover really fast and over these bumpy roads. You
1: get a new one of these. What for? It's perfectly all right.
0: That's the Queen right there. It doesn't want a new one.
1: Seeking
2: last night was Diana might have done had it been me that died in the tunnel in Paris. She was certainly have taken the boys to Paris. I rather regret not doing that now.
1: Uh, wouldn't expose them to the media? No, but that would have been a dreadful thing to do. But no, they're much better off here. It's private, they're protected.
2: Whatever else you may have thought of Diana, she was a wonderful mother. She adored those boys and never let them forget it. Always warm and physical. Never afraid to show her feelings.
1: Especially whenever a photographer was in sight. She may have encouraged all
0: that, but still... So this is just such a brilliant scene, because so many of the dynamics that we're led to think exist between the Queen and her son Charles here are being played out. Helen Mirren does a brilliant thing, and Frears does a great cutaway to her when he starts talking about Diana's skills as a mother, because... It's again, a conversation that he's talking about one thing on the surface, but what he's really saying is you weren't a great mother. You weren't physical. You weren't warm. And you can see this reaching its target on the queen's face in the way that Mirren plays it. This is my favorite part here. I'm gonna decode this in a second. I think you can hear it.
2: That was always the extraordinary thing about her, her. Weaknesses and transgressions only made the public love her more. Really make them hate us? Why is
1: that, Why do they
0: hate us so much? Not us, dear. What? Hmm? Okay. Why do they hate us, he cries out. Not us, dear, she says. In other words, not me, you. And then he says, what? And she says, hmm? As if she didn't hear him. That is so brilliant. <laughs> that is so brilliant. Of course she heard him. Of course he heard her. But the what? Hmm. Ping-pong is so specifically great and really, really well done. Uh, That's a fantastic thing. And the use, the contrast between that and, as I said, the use of these um, kind of Vox Populi real pieces from the British media are so definitely used by both of them. This, 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 you know, you get to hear what, again, the people that would go sleep out outside are going to say about this, which is not everyone. So you're seeing these scenes of just oceans of flowers. I mean, it's incredible. And I think the music is making a choice here. It's sympathetic, but it's also gothic and kind of strange-seeming.
2: The first thing that you, you obviously think about is, uh, now, this is is, f- is the rest of your family, and I... Un- Michael, Michael Sheen. Sheen. Well, she, she's thoughts, she's she is, and her
1: business.
2: thoughts are with us all. She wanted me to pass on to people here, crowding around them. the to spare, the
1: street word the boys? Not so good tonight.
0: So I love that because um, I like the kind of acting where you, where Michael Sheen has to do what he does there, where it's not an emotional scene. It's not a scene with close-ups. He's, he's, he's there to sort of defend her since she won't defend herself. He's doing her dirty work in a way. He's actually out there on the street with these people. Um, And I love the way the scene is played, you know, with the, with the uh, talking over each other. Um, And then you get to hear from some of the people themselves. Take it out on the stag.
1: What do you think of the way the royal family has behaved? They've made a serious mistake. Pardon?
2: They've made a serious mistake. Why, what do you
1: mean?
2: Well, they should have came, they should have, the family should have come down to Buckingham Palace on Sunday afternoon. All of them, aye. That girl's been left on her own, she's on her own up there, and the place is empty.
0: Oh, please. Sleeping in the streets and
2: pulling out their hair? Someone
0: they never knew. Now here you hear James Cromwell great performance as Prince Philip, who I think in all characterizations is generally described as a complicated, nasty piece of business. And Freer's and Morgan talk really well about they wanted to have a dramatic actor do this because if they had a comic actor, then it sort of invites caricature. Cromwell, too, I think, does a great job of the the haughtiness and the anger just below the surface with Prince Philip, the crown, you know, goes a little more into his difficult childhood and his schooling and sort of tries to show you some of that stuff. I like some of that, but I, I like James Cromwell here, but again, to a film that if you look at this film and you think, Oh, it's, it's, it's sympathetic to the Royals. Well, I mean, he's saying some pretty nasty things there. He's dismissive of people who are sleeping in the streets to get a glimpse of this experience. And, as many, you know, sympathetic moments as there are, there's a lot of anti-monarchy voices in the film, too, between Alistair Campbell, between some of the other cronies in 10 Downing Street who are gleefully celebrating the evisceration of the royals in the press. Um, and there's also the Queen Mother not getting it, as you'll hear, um, you know, when uh, Blair makes one of his many phone calls. And one of the great things about this film is uh, it does create some drama through uh, a phone call, which is not the most dramatic construct. Here's, here's one great phone call between Belair and the Queen and these are such great scenes because obviously they're not together, but they have to be acted as if they're together.
2: The Prime Minister for you, ma'am. I'm afraid he's rather insisting.
1: I'll take it in the kitchen.
0: This is a nice little touch because she has to go into the working kitchen of Balmoral, where the look on everyone's face that the Queen has just arrived is so well done, too.
1: Oh, there it is.
0: And her misbehaving corgis. Thank you, Clint. She girds herself for the battle of the phone call.
1: Good morning, Prime Minister.
0: Good morning, ma'am. You've seen
2: today's headlines. Yes, I have. Then I'm sure you'll agree the situation has become quite critical. Ma'am, a poll that's to be published in tomorrow's papers suggests that 70% of people believe that your actions have damaged the monarchy. And that one in four are now in favour of abolishing them. As your Prime Minister? I believe it is my constitutional responsibility to advise the
0: following. So here, he's speaking to her in her language. Remember in that first scene where she sort of put him in his place by evoking Winston Churchill and saying that she learned something of her constitutional responsibility and authority? Well, he's using her own words now to say, okay, Yes, it's early days for my prime ministership, but I've learned something here, and you're getting this wrong, and you're continuing to get it wrong. And then the scene goes on where she lays out the four steps of what Blair suggests. Mommy? Also, by the um? way, Peter Morgan's favorite line in the film is when she knocks on the door and says, "Mummy." He loves that, he says in the commentary tract. So these are these these things are now portrayed as what Blair has told her she must do.
1: Fly the flag at half mast above Buckingham Palace and all other royal residences. Two, leave Balmoral and fly down to London at the earliest opportunity. Three, pay respects in person at Diana's coffin. And four. Make a statement via live television to my people and the world. Swift prosecution of these matters might, he felt, just might avert disaster.
0: Okay, so several interesting things here. A, brilliant acting from Helen Mirren, might, he felt, such a great use of her. But also when you listen to the commentary track from, I think Peter Lacey is his name, who's the historical advisor to the film and the crown advisor, he knows all the protocols. And he also knows some of the story of what did happen internally within the palace and within the royal family during this time. And this is a very key point that he points out in his commentary commentary track, which is that this is portrayed in the film as queen gets it wrong, queen gets it wrong, queen gets it wrong. People are saying, you know, why doesn't she come down here? Essentially, the conflict as laid out is that the people or some percentage of the people want her to help them through this process. Like if she's the mother figure, well, something terrible happens, you need your mother. And in this case, the mother is staying withdrawn and is attending to what she sees as the right thing to do, which is to take care of the boys, her grandchildren, and to behave in a dignified manner. And the conflict and the drama inherent in the distance between those two things is where this movie lives. Well, in this version of events, it's Blair and his people who tell her, if you do these four things, maybe, just maybe, you can correct this situation. But in fact, according to Peter Lacey, it's quite the opposite. It was the palace itself that came up with this plan. And this is part of what I do like to read about with the royal family, if you like communications, if you like marketing, and you like how do they say what they say, what are the gestures uh, that they speak with? You know, the royal family is a is a is a ripe source for stuff like that. There's very very careful consideration about every word, every gesture, things that are worn. What you remember when the Queen finally had to meet with Trump. I believe she wore a very specific type of brooch, which if you decoded it, sent a subtle shot at Trump. Like, that's the type of stuff that gets thought about. So in the film here, you're you're shown, and to great traumatic effect, the queen is irritated and angry that she's been given these four things that she now will do, and she will then go on to do them in the film. But it's kind of fascinating that in real life, it was the palace itself. It was the queen's handlers, maybe uh, it wasn't Jan Vryn, actually. He he actually was not in the position that he's shown in the film. It was someone else, but they didn't use the person, uh, they didn't use the persona of the actual personal secretary to the queen because that person was actually married into Diana's family. So that would just be a complication in the film that you did, the film didn't really need. So they used Jan Vryn, who actually was in that role prior to these events, just to clean that up a little bit. But it's interesting to me that the film portrays her being told to do these things, but in fact, it was the palace itself that came up with the four-point plan. Um, And one of the great things about the film, and I love this kind of stuff, and maybe you like this too, there are a couple moments in the film that actually happened. Word for word, in real life, there's a speech that Tony Blair gave outside his family's church. That's the one that's talked about between him and Alistair Campbell. Uh, it's the famous "People's Princess" speech, which again in the film is shown that Alistair Campbell is the one who jotted that phrase down. But I believe later even Campbell admitted that Tony Blair came up with that phrase himself. And this this moment is used uh, to great effect in the film, and it's a great Martin Sheen moment.
2: Take Martin yes, Sheen, the Prime Minister Michael Sheen coming now uh, with his wife. Yeah, well,
0: and what's cool about this is they're using the real news commentary from the real footage uh, over what has been shot of Michael Sheen and his family. So it's just, this is like one of those places where the fictional and the nonfiction meet in the film, which I just think is really cool. And then you hear a portion of this speech really, really well done by Michael Sheen.
2: She touched the lives of so many others. in it- in Britain throughout the world with joy and with comfort. The people everywhere, not just here in Britain, everywhere, they kept faith with Princess Diana. They liked her, they loved her. They regarded her as one of the people. She was the people's princess. And that's how she will stay, how she will remain in our hearts and in our memories
1: forever. A bit over the top, don't you think? Prime Minister?
0: So this is a great speech moment. And as you can hear Jan say, bit over the top, don't you think? But then he turns around and all of the working class people who work in 10 Downing Street are assembled and are crying. They are moved. blair's speech and it's so well written and it's so well performed that you would be forgiven for thinking this is a fictional construct but in fact that is the actual speech that tony blair gave i'll play a little bit for you here
2: not just here in britain everywhere they kept faith with princess diana they liked her they loved her they regarded her as one of the people She was the people's princess and that's how she will stay, how she will remain in our hearts and in our memories forever.
0: So, I mean, it is, I mean, it is pause perfect. It is gesture perfect and both Michael Sheen and Helen Mirren have moments of perfect recreation of these actual speeches and it's great. It's, it's like it's a, it's a place where the film realizes in a way you'd almost want to use the real clip because it's more powerful, but because we are fictionalizing Tony Blair and the queen, we obviously can't see real Tony Blair and real queen. So they have to do it. And the most powerful way for them to do it is not to put anything else on it. I mean, you can play these two clips. I'll put these clips I'll put links to these clips in the uh, podcast notes so you can look at them. You could actually sync them up. I tried to do this the other day, but I can't think of a good way to do it here in real time as I'm recording. But you can sync them up and they match exactly frame by frame. It's incredible. And at the end of the film, which is the scene I think that pretty much won the Oscar for Helen Mirren, who did win uh, the Best Actress Oscar for this performance, is this incredibly shot and thought out one-take close-up delivery of, again, a real speech that the Queen eventually gave in tribute to Diana, and it is a masterclass of Helen Mirren.
1: Since last Sunday's dreadful news, we have seen throughout Britain and around the world an overwhelming expression of sadness at Diana's death. We have all been trying, in our different ways, to cope. It is not easy to express a sense of loss, since the initial shock is often succeeded by a mixture of other feelings, disbelief, incomprehension, anger, and concern for those who remain. We have all felt those emotions in these last few days. So what I say to you now, as your queen, and as a grandmother, I say, from my heart. Heart? First, I want to pay... What heart? heart Doesn't mean a word of this. That's not the point.
2: What she's doing is extraordinary.
1: In good times and bad, she never lost
0: her... (sighs) That's how to survive. So, I mean, here again, Blair is now having respect for her, whereas before he didn't quite have so much respect. And that's what's going on between Cherie and, and Tony Blair there. But when you match up the actual speech from the Queen to what Helen Mirren does, it is... Again, it is frame by frame perfect down to facial gestures, um, things that she does with her mouth and her lips. It is spot on. And again, you could line these two up and they would play perfectly in sync.
1: Since last Sunday's dreadful news, we have seen throughout Britain and around the world an overwhelming expression of sadness at Diana's death. We have all been trying in our different ways to cope. It is not easy to express a sense of loss since the initial shock is often succeeded by a mixture of other feelings, disbelief, incomprehension, anger, and concern for those who remain. We have all felt those emotions in these last few days. So what I say to you now as your queen and as a grandmother, I say from my heart First I want
0: So again this is so brilliant it's brilliant as a piece of communication theater the queen's actual speech the words are so thought out and going back to what I said before about the way upper classes send messages what she's saying is we, we've all had when she says we've all had these basket of emotions anger sadness what she's saying is I had this and my instinct was to protect my family first and that's why I was absent and we've all grief makes us all do strange things i mean that's what's being said but it's not being said directly it's being said through this brilliantly polished simple message and that's what i like about the communications of it is that it's so simple and direct but it contains so much more than what the words themselves are articulating. And it's her performance of them. The queen, the actual queen in the clip I just played you is as much performing this speech as Helen Mirren is. And there's as much at there's, there's obviously much more at stake when she's doing it because she was doing it in real time. And there was real peril for the survival of the monarchy uh, at the time. If one in four people were in favor of abolishing the monarchy. So, it's just a brilliant piece of theater. It's a brilliant piece of writing. It's a brilliant piece of acting, and the visage, the hair, the glasses, the three strands of pearls, uh, the backdrop—it's—it's it's just gotten exactly exactly right by Freer's, and um, and I think it's it's extraordinary. So this cast is 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 incredible. Um, it was nominated for six Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best Costume Design, and Best Original Score. I do want to single out the score by Alexander Desplat. Um, I don't know if you say his last name. He's French. Desplat? Desplat? Desplat. He's done a lot of uh, Wes Anderson films. He does a great score. Again, the score straddles that line between real evocative emotion and... Kind of a grand, um, gothic sense of macabre, almost like what are we watching over the scenes of the public reaction to Diana's death? Uh, it was nominated for a ton more BAFTAs. It won best film. Helen Mirren won best actress, as I said. So, I think it's a it's it's one of my favorite genres of film, which is like the real life event film that's kind of small in scale in a way, even though there are grand locations here. Uh, I thought it was topical. I thought it was a good thing to rewatch in light of a lot of this stuff playing out in the news media again as we head into the post-Queen era, the King Charles era. And I think it's a film that's always worthy of watching. The performances are always great. And I think it deserves a more measured and balanced appraisal. As not simply a film that's sympathetic to the royal family, although it is that in places, but it's also as piercingly uh, cynical about them at the same time as it is about politics as it is about 10 Downing Street as it is about the press. And it's a little bit of a capsule of a different time that I personally lived through I was working at MSNBC at the time when this happened. I mean, my whole life at work revolved around this for for weeks on end. And so It's always an opportunity to remember how different things were in 1996, 1997. uh, How different they were even in 2006, 2007 when this film came out, let alone how different they are now. So anyway, I thought it was worthwhile to revisit. I hope you get something out of it. If you haven't seen the film, give it a watch and see if any of these things that I'm pointing out resonate to you. Keep in touch, and we will be back next week with another episode of the Full Cast and Crew podcast.